In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hello, I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and welcome to the Voices of King, a 13-part podcast from the AJC. Originally recorded in 2008 for a short documentary, we sat down with 13 people who were close to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in life and in death. This podcast was originally released in 2018 to mark the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's death. Now, as we move into a new era, we are revisiting these important interviews to give you a glimpse inside the making of history. We were proud to document these conversations then, and we are proud to present them to you today. He went on to defy those who sought to kill him. I'm not fearing any man. I ran to the car, what happened, what happened? And when I turn around, then I can see. All I was thinking about was, Lord, don't let him die. You know, don't let him die, don't let him die. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, I don't go back there. I've been there, but I haven't been there. There's nothing there that I want to remember, really. Why King? Why the Prince of Peace? That was going through my mind. This man, this one man, he taught us how to live, and he taught us how to die. This is The Voices of King, a podcast of 13 voices, 13 people who bore witness to the last days of the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., as told to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ryan Horn. Christine King Ferris traveled to Memphis in April 1968 to help retrieve the body of her little brother, Martin Luther King Jr. However, she couldn't get off the plane. She didn't want to step foot on the soil where her brother was murdered. She was the oldest of three born to Alberta and Daddy King. She was the leader of the three. King Ferris graduated from Spelman College in Economics graduated from Columbia University in education, and would go on to become the Director of Learning Resources Center at Spelman. She, like everyone else, says that after years of trekking on the trail for civil rights, her brother Martin was looking forward to a more quiet life as a professor or even possibly the president of Morehouse College. Former AJC reporter Jim Mooney conducted the interview with King Ferris in 2008. Well, Christine King Ferris is the only surviving uh, sibling of Martin Luther King Jr., the only member of that immediate family who's still with us. She turned 90 years old uh, last fall. She's she's, uh, MLK's big sister, and she taught for years at Spelman. When you're talking to these people about King being killed, I mean, what they're really going back and accessing are 
They're not talking about somebody who's the focus of a national holiday or somebody who's become a statue or a memorial on the mall in Washington. They're talking about their brother and their father and their friend and their colleague and their leader, uh, the preacher they saw last Sunday at the pulpit. They're talking about very personal things and somebody that they knew in a very different way than most of the rest of the world did. My name is Christine King Barris, uh, sister, older sister, Martin Luther King, Jr. Mrs. Ferris, where were you on the night of April 4th, 1968, when you heard the news about your brother? I was at my home on Larchmont Drive in Atlanta, and I heard the announcement on TV, the Huntley-Brinkley Report. and. Um, I heard Chet Huntley say we interrupt this broadcast, uh, whatever, telecast, whatever. And he said, we have word that Dr. Martin Luther King has been shot in Memphis. And I was very alarmed. And in a few minutes he came back and he said, it is true and we understand that it is critical. And of course, when he said critical, I was really just taken aback because critical means you know, close to death. So it was very disconcerting. Had you been around when there were reports of your brothers uh, uh, having been uh, harmed before? Because I mean, there had been other brushes with death in his life, had there not? Oh yes, several. Yes, uh, <clears throat> the first one that I can think about uh, was when he was autographing copies of his book, his first book, in New York. And I got this call that uh, he had been stabbed by this demented woman. That was, again, quite disconcerting. Try to describe what went through your head when you saw that uh, Chet Huntley make that, uh, those announcements during the news that night. Well, I, I was just really uh, frustrated and sad because I figured when he came back and said it was critical, uh, critical means almost death, and I was just taken aback. I uh, was sitting uh, with my children. In fact, I had been on some machine. It was almost Easter. I was making my daughter a dress. And uh, I went into another room to get something. And then when he came up with this announcement, I, I, I really got back into the den. And uh, it was very disconcerting. And uh, shortly thereafter, my husband came in, and uh, he had heard the news on the radio, I guess. Um, and I started uh, trying to contact my parents. I called Coretta, tried to get her. The line was busy. My parents' line was busy. I couldn't get anyone. And so my husband said, uh, we'll have to go. Well, I can't leave the children here. So 
able to get babysitter I could young lady lived near us and uh, we got in the car and uh, drove to Sunset to Coretta's and when we got to Sunset Coretta was coming down the steps with then Mayor Ivan Allen and my husband again said uh, you'll have to go with Coretta and she told us that she was on the way to Memphis and so my Isaac said well you have to go with her I said but I'm not dressed I would go uh, and he never backed off of that so Coretta said come on get in the car we got in the uh, police car Mayor Allen was on the front seat and the three of us were in the back and all the time that we were moving, the mayor was talking, getting information. And Coretta uh, said she had talked with, uh, she got a call from Jesse Jackson. Coretta said that she had just spoken with Jesse. And he told her, Coretta, you need to get the first thing smoking this way. And of course, that too was disconcerting because that suggested that it was serious. And as we you know, rode to the airport, I mean, the mayor was constantly talking back and forth uh, on the phone. And I don't remember much else after that until we got to the airport. When I got to the airport, I tried to speak with my parents. I had tried to get them. I still couldn't get them. I kept calling. The line was continuously busy. And I couldn't get an operator, you know, to make an emergency call. It was, it was, it was very disconcerting. And uh, Dora McDonald met us at the airport. Dora was uh, my brother's secretary. And she said, I have your tickets. Now, I didn't even know <laughs> that I was going. So somebody had gotten tickets for us to go to Memphis. Remind you, I'm still in a so-called house dress. And that was, you know, I, I did take time to think about that, being frustrated. I still tried to get my parents. I couldn't get them. And... Um, I, when you say you were in a house dress, what do you mean? Not a house coat? No, you know, just a, a dress that you wear around the house. No, it wasn't a house coat. It was a dress. It just wasn't, it just wasn't a dress that you'd wear to have knees That's right. Okay, Exactly. Gotcha. Right. Okay. <laughs> and I'm very, you know, attentive to what I wear. Yes. So <laughs> that disturbed me, but I still tried. I went to the phone trying to get my parents. I still couldn't get them. Later I found out the reason I couldn't get them because my brother, my other brother, A.D., was talking to them. He was there in Memphis and he was talking to my parents. And, you know, because he was very concerned. Because by that time I think they knew what was going on. So, Dora came and got Coretta and took her down the hall to the ladies room. When I finally decided I couldn't get get through, then I went looking for them 
and I found them and as soon as I went into the ladies room then the door opened and Mayor Allen was coming right there into to the ladies room and he you know was very uh, I don't know very I think uh, methodical he said Mrs. King I have the sad duty to announce to you that Dr. King has passed. So that's how you found out was being right there? That was confirmed. When the mayor was confirming that too? That's right. Mm -hmm. Y'all went back to the house after that? Yes, uh, she decided that she must go to the children because they had the tickets for us to go on to Memphis. But she said that at this point, she must go back to the children. So we went back. What was the scene at the house like that night? Well, I think there were a few people. Of course, the babysitter there. There wasn't too many people there. Uh, at that point and I remember uh, when we entered the door uh, Yolanda the oldest one she had uh, heard it heard something about it and she asked her mother you know is it true and I don't, I don't remember what Coretta said because it was where but she said come on we've got to look at the the television because we had gotten worried that uh, Lyndon Johnson was getting ready to make an announcement and as soon as we did get in, in the room and uh, Lyndon Johnson was coming to his office to make the announcement and I remember that this is a sad time for all people that was his introduction mm -hmm. were you around when Coretta uh brought the news to their children? Well, it, they, uh, as I said, Yolanda already knew. And, uh, no, I don't remember when she, you know, talked with the others. I, I, I don't, at that point, you know, it was just so frustrating, I can't remember. You, well, yeah, tell me about what your state of mind was at that you said that you were so frustrated. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know, uh, I was frustrated because, you know, I didn't know, I was thinking about my children that I had left, my parents I couldn't talk to. So it was just a, a frustrating moment. I, I, I didn't quite know which way that I should go. But uh, we sat and, you know, stayed with Coretta for a long time because I remember it must have been after midnight when I got to my parents' home. When I got there, uh, I saw my mother was cooking. She was getting something out of the stove. So that made me feel a little better because she was a little bit more composed. next day, uh, Mrs. King, I believe, flew to Memphis to, to claim the body and bring it home. Yes. Uh, you went along for that? I was right there. 
tell me about what you remember from that. Well, I remember that very well. Uh, Robert Kennedy sent a plane, a huge jet, and uh, we flew to Memphis. And uh, let's see, uh, Black Enterprise had uh, Earl Graves was then associated with the Kennedys, so they sent him to take care of the plane, take care of us. Um, we arrived in Memphis, and it was a cloudy day. It was misting. It wasn't raining hard, but it was cloudy. And people were just all on the tarmac. Uh, and the National Guard was standing with very long pistols, trained on those people. And it was just a, a feeling that I cannot erase. And that is why I have not been to Memphis and I do not choose to return to Memphis because that is a feel that I have and, and it, it's not a good one. Um, shortly after we landed, uh, <clears throat> they came, those in Memphis came on the plane Andy, Ralph, my brother Alfred A.D. And that's all I can remember. They came on and they were just in tears. We never got off the plane, but that scene I will never forget. You never got off the plane when you went to Memphis? Never got off the plane. And that's the last time you've been to Memphis? The last time. So you've, ne you've never been to the Mariah? Never. The no, I have not. There. I have not. Because that is my association with Memphis. And shortly after they came on, and I mean they were just really just crying. I remember Andy just breaking down. And uh, shortly thereafter they, you know, brought my brother's, you know, casket and body. They put him on the back, and, you know, on the back of the plane. Because it was a huge jet. Mm -hmm. Y'all brought uh, his body back to Atlanta. Yeah. And I believe the percent of, well, they, uh, the hearse took him up to the, uh, what was it, the Bell, uh, one of the hand, Hanley, well, Hanley Funeral Home Bell Street. Right. That's right. Had there been much and discussion? it was at that point that, you know, they let us see him because they had already, you know, dressed and put him in a casket and all. So that was the first time you viewed the body was at the funeral? Yes, and they had to encourage me to do that because I wasn't going to look. Was that difficult? It was difficult. It had to have been. It was very difficult, but I finally, you know, got up enough... Uh, nerve and something to go and look. Um, had there been much discussion within the family uh, about what, what you wanted the funeral to be like? Uh, Coretta and I uh, worked on that along with Dora McDonald. And uh, I remember sitting in Coretta's uh, bedroom, sitting on the middle of the floor, and uh, we were trying to 
decide what it what the funeral should be like. And we knew some music, some of the music. And um, all of a sudden it's the Coretta. Emel has already preached his eulogy because back I think it was in February he did that drum major speech. And it was so moving. I was in the quiet church and I had to go out because it was just you know, just really a moving piece. And then, of course, that same day, because Coretta was out because of uh, her surgery and she was recuperating, and she wasn't there. So when he got there, when Martin got there, he told her, he said, you know, I might have preached my eulogy this morning in kind of a joking way. And she wanted to hear it, and of course, at that time, Fortunately, they were recording, and so she was able. They had uh, SLC had something called Martin Luther King Speaks, and they would uh, send those tapes to New York, and then they would broadcast them. So as we were sitting there trying to think about the funeral, I said, I said, uh, ML has already, you know, he preached he did his own eulogy. And so she said, oh yeah, that's right. And um, then we made a call to New York to Martin Luther King speak and they sent a tape. And um, it was on the program. I, I forget exactly what was on the word. It said, I think it says something about Martin Luther King in his own words or something like that. And Ralph Abernathy was um, uh, presiding at the funeral. And so we didn't have enough time, I guess, to go over the program and say this. So Ralph had seen the program and he thought that he was to do some of Martin's quotes. And of course, when that time came and he started saying, and then I looked down the road of Coretta, we looked at each other, and we were able to get, you know, word up to Ralph that the tape should, <coughs> excuse me, be playing. And so that's how we were able to get that. So, so in the actual funeral service, and this was at Ebenezer. At Ebenezer. The mm -hmm. intention was to, because you remembered that eulogy mm -hmm. that he had preached back in February at Ebenezer, mm -hmm. the intention was to play that, but uh, at, the actual, at the actual funeral, Ralph started using some Ye of that yes, stuff. Yes, he started because, see, we hadn't, hadn't done that communi communication properly because we were just moving. And uh, nobody thought, you know, to tell him. And he had seen the program, but we hadn't talked to him, gone over the program. So, but that got straightened out. Mm -hmm. Let's take a short break. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast. 
Breakdown, the Trump indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Welcome back to the Voices of King. We continue with a 2008 interview with Christine King Ferris. And there, uh, do you recall whose idea it was to do the mules and the, and the farm wagon? Well, that was part of SCLC. I don't know what individual, but uh, that mule train they called it back. That was, okay. was was the whole family uh, happy with that, or was there oh, yes, was any discussion about it? There wasn't discussion because we knew that that was that was a part of what it should be. Your father, as well, he also yeah he he it. wasn't a part of it. I mean, so that was a, a decision, and that was no problem. Mm-hmm. The uh, first public viewing was over here at Spelman. Yes. That uh, Saturday night. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I believe you were part. You were uh, with the family uh, when you came in and and uh, and looked at the body. Yeah. Well, we had come earlier in the day. Uh, I, I recall that Harry Belafonte came as uh, very shortly after he heard about uh, my brother's uh, assassination, and so we were trying to decide. You know what he would, you know, be buried in. How he would look, and we had the suit and everything. And Harriet took time. I remember him taking time to pick out, select the tie and you know a handkerchief to go in there. And then after we got him, uh, got that together, and then they took, you know, the undertaker came and got it and. Then let us know later that afternoon that we could go and see it. And that was before anybody, of course, else, you know, viewed. We went in for private viewing. You know, Zernona Clayton tells a story about y'all going in for that private viewing and not being really pleased with the way he looked and doing a little, essentially doing a little touching up. Just a little bit. It wasn't that much. It wasn't that much. It, it might have been something, maybe straight out of tie, but it wasn't any major. So it didn't, it didn't look that bad to you? Oh, no. Because it still really seemed to strike her as not, as, as not being good. No, we can't go with that because she was not there. She was not there. Only uh, when we went, it was, you know, our family, Harry Belafonte. Mm-hmm. I don't recall Zanona being there. You don't? I don't. Okay. But I mean, that doesn't need to go anywhere. I just don't recall seeing her. And you know, it could be that I was, you know, so moved and everything, but I don't recall her being at that time. Now, she probably came, you know, shortly thereafter. Because she tells a story in her memoir. And, and for us here uh, a couple of weeks ago about her and Harry Belafonte doing a little, basically a little makeup touch-up. 
On, on the side of his face where he had been shot. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, but when you first went in to view it, she wasn't there. If that happened, it would have happened a little later. I think so. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me about the funeral itself and what you remember from that. Uh, the service at Ebenezer that Tuesday morning. Mm -hmm. I just remember, uh, you know, it followed the program and the music, Ebenezer's choir and everything. I really don't remember a lot of the details. I really don't. So the program, you know, it, it went according to the program except, you know, that, that I was telling you about Ralph, we not communicating to him and getting the word to him. So as soon though as uh, we got the word up there to him, then, you know, he sat down and let the tape play. And then we came out of Ebenezer and uh, then some of them, uh, they drove Coretta and the children and my brother, A.D. Alfred, up to the mule train. And I knew that my parents weren't going to walk, so I stayed with them, and we were in, in our limo. And uh, so we joined them. Um, uh, then, of course, after a while, they put Coretta and the children in another limo, so, you know, we didn't walk from one Auburn to the chapel, but uh, they brought us up uh, on uh, then Ashby, which is Joseph Lowry now, the corner of uh, Ashby and um, Fair Street on that corner and at that time there was um, a gym, Morehouse gym, and we went in the, the lobby to get ourselves, you know, together uh, and they were still marching, you know, coming, all the people. And I remember a lady, I was so touched by that, she said, I guess she thought that we had been marching. She said, let me just rub your feet, massage your feet. And I was so humbled by that. I mean, she got out on her knees and just, you know, massaged our feet. Of course, we were near the campus then, the where it was going to be, but it was such a touching uh, moment that she felt so humble to do that. And then we walked on down to the the campus oval, uh, where the uh, second half of the funeral was held. And then as I recall, that was where a lot of the people who were supposed to give speeches did not because things were running so long. Uh, I know. And I think they tried to 
to cut it down because it was running long and we were trying to have to get to the cemetery before dark. And uh, I remember some did try to, to march, but I remember Andy. Andy was so tired and so he got in the limo with us. And he was just nodding all the time because he hadn't had any sleep. So we got, you know, we finally got to Southview Cemetery. Um, and it was a pretty simple committal service yes, there, I believe. Uh, it was. Abernathy said the words. Mm -hmm. uh, a much smaller crowd there, obviously, because mm -hmm. it's a lot farther to mm -hmm. walk. And yeah, but it was a good crowd. But it was mostly a motorcade that went from uh, the AU Center down to South. Right. Mm -hmm. What do you remember about just about the emotions you were feeling that day? Well, I just remembered. I said, "Oh, this is going to be a long time without him." Um, it was just hard for me to to envision what the future was going to be like. Very frustrating moments. You know, he had always, he had talked about wanting a simple service. Mm -hmm. Do you think he would have been pleased with the service that he got? I which, think so. Which because was a, little more, a little more involved than simple. <laughs> Yes, but on the other hand, it was simple. I mean, it was straightforward, and uh, it had, you know, his uh, friends and colleagues who were a part of it. We tried to make it so what he would have wanted. Ms. Ferris, you know, that over those few days, there was a great deal of violence breaking out in cities across the nation. Uh, I read somewhere that there were something like 55,000 troops called up to quell the disorders, and I think there were over 40 people killed. Except for a few minor things, there really wasn't much violence in Atlanta. Right. Were y'all watching, uh, paying much attention to the, to, the, to the disorders that were going on elsewhere in the nation during those days? Not really. I mean, we, we knew about it, but our concern was doing what we had to do. And of course, uh, you know, Coretta and children uh, went to Memphis to continue the march that was scheduled. I did, I did not go back to that because I was trying to work on things here. But uh, <clears throat> Why do you think there was so little uh, disorder in in your brother's hometown, in your hometown. Why do you think Atlanta remained so peaceful during those days? Well, there had been a dialogue and uh, among Atlanta, you know, the blacks and whites, there was a, a more more of a some kind of uh, relationship there. Uh, they had, uh, we had been through several uh, demonstrations of uh, not necessarily the same type of demonstrations, but, uh, you know, there was some 
relationship between whites and blacks and so you wouldn't have had that kind of uh, breakout like you did in other cities because there was some relationship between the, the black community and the white community. And I've had people tell me that they think a, a large part of it was the, the desire of people here to pay the proper respect to your brother and not to, not to desecrate his memory by being violent when he mm -hmm. was stood for nonviolence. Mm -hmm. You think some of that came about? I, I think so, but uh, you know, the, the atmosphere was different. I mean, you did have some type of limited uh, cooperation and communication between blacks and white, black leaders and white leaders. So that wouldn't have happened in Atlanta. They and wouldn't. kind of typified by what Mayor Allen did the minute he heard the news when you yeah. drive down to Sunset. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else about the funeral in those days that uh, you'd like to tell us about that, that uh, Think would be significant for us to know that you haven't told about? I don't think so. It was um, just a simple, straightforward funeral. And I think that's what he would have wanted because he said in that thing, you don't have to worry about a long funeral and talk about all the honors that I have received, you know. So, so we tried to, to do the best. Do you have anything else you want to add? Yeah, the one, uh, I don't know if I missed it, so tell me. Uh, what are your thoughts about the final speech in Memphis that he made at the Mason Temple, um, the Promised Land speech? Mm -hmm. I mean, could you talk about it's, that? Did you watch that at all? Yeah, it's, it's moving. Every time I see it, you know, it, it's, very, it's very difficult. Because it was like he, like he said, that he had seen the mountaintop and it was like he was ready to go because he had been under so much pressure and everything and uh, yeah when I heard that too afterwards I say that's you know what he was was thinking about and uh, the afternoon uh, before that happened, he had a long chat and talk with my mother, and that was, you know, it was that was a good feeling for her because he told me, said, "Mother dear, that's what we called her." And he said, "I'll be home Sunday," and he gave the title of the sermon that he may preach: "Why America May Go to Hell." <laughs> Why America may go to hell? Something like that. <laughs> and he said, and I want you to, um, um, <clears throat> I want some fried chicken, collard greens, stuff like that. So I was so pleased that he had that, that talk with her. And I think that was the reason that she was able to contain herself. And, because when I did finally get through to her, then she said, you know, we had a long talk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
It's sort of interesting that you bring that up because everyone had said in the weeks before, because of the violence in Memphis, he had been in a bit of a, you know, he had been down and he hadn't been happy. And everyone says the day of April 4th, Andy Young talks about the pillow fight. They had remarkable, and one day almost seen a complete turnaround in his mood. Did yeah, well, he was very, when, as a matter of fact, when that first violence broke out in Memphis, Oh, it just did something to me. I said, Emil will never get over this. He'll never get over it. Because that was what he was fighting against. And then, you know, they had to really just literally almost push him into the car. Because he wasn't trying to run away from it. But, you know, they they pushed him in into the car, away from from the crowd. But I, when I saw that, I said, he'll never get over this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that what you called him a lot of the time, Emil? Yeah, that's what I called him. Yeah. It was customary <clears throat> then to call him by the initial M-L-A-D. And finally, I tried to say Martin, but it didn't sound right. <laughs> In the next episode of The Voices of King, We will hear from former AP reporter Katherine Johnson, the only reporter granted access to the King family after the death of Atlanta's son. A special thanks to AJC reporters Rosalind Bentley and Ernie Suggs. Also to Senior Editor of Visuals Sandra Brown, Senior Managing Editor Mark Wallagor, and our Editor-in-Chief Kevin Raleigh. Be sure to visit www.ajc.com backslash MLK50 for the AJC's coverage of honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I'm Ryan Horn, and you've been listening to The Voices of King. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Hip-hop is a product of Black people. It's a product of Black song. A celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop.